Welcome to Unedited. It's our off-season mini-series where I've been sharing the raw tape of interviews that I've previously done with popular podcast hosts. These stories were published at Under the Radar's magazine website. A lot of the conversation doesn't make it to the main story, but I bet you'd be interested in what Hanif Abdurraqib, a poet, essayist, and culture critic might have to say about music, storytelling, or how after a year of being invited into the homes of our favorite artists or bands, we're going to have a recalibration of intimacy post-pandemic. A big fan of Hanif's writing, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to speak to him earlier this year when he launched a new podcast with Sonos called Object of Sound. What is the object of sound? In Hanif's case, it's a way for him to tell us stories framed through a certain lens with the help of his guests and a playlist. As he describes it, the playlist is used as a narrative or literary device to tell a particular story in a way that he wants you to hear it. Um. So hi, Hanif. I'm Celine. I'm going to jump right into it. So I really enjoyed Object of Sound. Uh, the last thing I heard that you did was Lost Notes. Um, so I wasn't sure just sort of what to expect. I- I'm learning that familiarity with format is so important to understanding and enjoying a podcast as well. Um, and the three episodes that I heard of Object of Sound... Um, I love the format where you have just like a clear theme and then you interview a guest or a, a selection of guests and you proceed to handpick a collection of songs that coalesce around the theme. It's so simple but effective. It's it's kind of genius. Um, how did this partnership with Sonos come about and who picked the format as such with the way the series is structured? And also, I understand it goes back to your 68 to 05 project. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of collaborated on the format. I knew that I wanted to make playlists, kind of short bursts of songs that I could arrange and talk about. Um, And I knew coming off of Lost Notes that I didn't want to just talk about music. I wanted to talk to people about music. Um, I get really weary and worn out on my own voice and my own writing and my own tone and the way that I shape things. Um, and I think there's something revelatory in kind of pursuing a set of questions and like zooming in on a specific theme uh, as a collaborative effort with other people who are also thinking about these things. And so um, it was kind of obvious that the show would have to be some kind of interview show or a show that um, – did not center my ideas, but centered my curiosities in conversation with other people. Um, and, and that's kind of how we arrived at this. And, uh, you know, the playlist part of it for me is what really drives it home. And, I, you know, I wanted it to feel a bit like a radio show. You know, I've always wanted to host a radio show and have never gotten to. And um, there's something really exciting about feeling like um, – I'm a bit of a radio host here. I like that, actually. Um, 
It it also struck me that it's so grounded in this moment. Um, some artists choose not to talk about it because everyone is doing it, and there's some fatigue to it as well. Whereas others choose to really lean in. And for for what you've done, there's a real kind of emotional intimacy. And folks familiar with your writing will know well the way the personal informs what you put into out into the public sphere. Um, but f- f- as a listener, it really draws you in, and it's prescriptive and healing was that the intention i don't know if it was the strictest intention but i'm happy it came out that way i mean i i did want to make it feel communal i wanted to kind of reach for a community of listeners um and understand that the process of loving music and immersing oneself in music is something that I didn't come to alone. You know, I, I um, have parents who love songs and older siblings who love songs. And my my music taste, though I, I think I've found a lot of it on my own now, but it was first formed by people around me who love music. And um, I find that I'm more often than not now reaching laterally uh, and not reaching up towards an elder to impart some wisdom on me about song but i'm kind of reaching laterally just towards other music fans particularly in my age range who are listening to things differently than i'm listening to them and um you know i wanted to to make that a part of this process as well as much as possible um i wanted to make it so that uh listening and um and i didn't want to be instructive i didn't want to tell people what to listen to but I kind of wanted to tap on this idea of if we're listening together with any luck, we'll come to various conclusions about what we're hearing. And and that's really beneficial. Yeah, I like that uh, for the Future Selves episode with Moses Sumney, the way you invite listeners to create a playlist for their future selves. Um, And um, have you had people send you their list yet? Yeah, yeah, we had a few. Um, I was just actually going through one of the ones I got. Um, and it's really great. I mean, people are like being really thoughtful about that prompt and, you know, hopefully every other week or every few weeks we can do that, you know, make a prompt that's a little bit more um, inclusive and asking people to, um, you know, build things out on their own. Because again, like I, I really, really want this to be something there where people can feel, uh, like they're a part of the process. What can you glean from like the list uh, you've received so far? Because I imagine like just thinking about it myself, it could be like reading tea leaves almost, you know, if you imagine it for your future selves. Yeah, well, it feels to me most commonly um, like people are not only feeling dread, you know, which is, I, you know, when I made mine, I thought that's what I was thinking about is that um, – these are dreadful times, but why I chose this prompt of music for one's future self, I think, uh, was because in the future, I want to remember more than just the dreadfulness of the times. Um, that, I feel like, will will stick with me. That will not need to be prompted by any sound or any song. Uh, that's going to be living inside me for a while. What is less likely is that I will remember the things that made this moment joyful for me, even briefly. And I think other people have kind of taken to that as well, where the playlists aren't just like, hear a bunch of songs about being inside and being miserable. There are also some that 
you know, express gratitude at being able to engage in some small and, um, you know, merciful bit of tumbling <laughs> through this mess as well. Um, that that I don't know why that seems surprising that there should be uh, these songs that bring us joy because even just anecdotally, whenever we reflect on the past, it's always with a hint of nostalgia. We forget all the truly bad things quite often, um, so that yeah. makes sense. Um, on that, I mean, it does. It does feel like this moment is going to put our, our the, even the most most romantic nostalgists to the test, right? Yeah. Uh, myself being like, hey, you know, I feel like I'm a very romantic person who's obsessed with nostalgia in many forms uh but i think i think this uh this moment's going to put that to the test yeah um i also like how um on the same episode moses mentions he arranges playlists according to sonics and tones rather than lyrically uh, but it seems to me like the possibilities seem endless you know and and exciting whatever mode it's like if you change how you want to make your playlist a little bit you go down a completely different path um for you how old were you when you started making old school playlists i guess mixtapes those little cassettes that even i made um yeah. you know with those handwritten titles and you scrunched them out and put a new title to it when you re-recorded over it um so back then what was your preferred method of arranging songs and has that changed Oh, I was, I was never, you know, with tapes, and I remember being like 10 years old and making some of my first ones. With the way I was making tapes, I didn't have an understanding of arrangement back then. Some of that was because you just recorded what you could off the radio when it came on. Um, and so you didn't have, or at least I didn't have the freedom to properly arrange or think about arrangement because it was like, I want the, I want to hear the song. I want this song archived on a place where I can listen to it um, when I want to listen to it, or I can self-determine when I listen to it. And I just got to record it when I hear it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there was kind of a, a real structureless, I think when I started burning CDs in my mid-late teens, then I got a little bit more thoughtful about arrangement. It was a lot more, it was a lot easier to be thoughtful about arrangement, particularly when, you're, when I was burning like straight from, um, straight from computer, mm -hmm. you know, because in the early days of Napster, of Napster and LimeWire and all this stuff to download, you could really just like break out songs and structure songs. Um, but in the tape era, for me, it was just like, all right, I got to get this on tape and that's it. And that's funny because uh, listening to tapes, listening to mixtapes, physical tapes is actually more work. It's so, it's so much work. You got to fast forward or <laughs> rewind if you, um, but that meant for me that structuring in order was both less important and somehow more important and neglected, but it was less important because I was like, everything I put on a tape has to be a song. I know I'm going to want to hear a million times, mm -hmm. you know, it has to be a song I love to the level of a million playbacks because I want to be able to get through this whole tape without having to break out my Walkman and do the, you know, <laughs> exact math of, of rewinding and fast forwarding. What were some of these songs that, um, that you can remember that you really loved having on your mixtape? Weirdly, the one song that comes to mind is this song called crazy for you by Ebony Foster, mm -hmm. which was this like, wasn't a hit, certainly wasn't a hit. But it was this R&B song that um, I think it came out in 97, 98, mm -hmm. um, that 
got a little bit of play on the video channels. It wasn't a big radio hit, but the video channels played it. You know, it was on BT, um, and I loved it. And I, I was also aware that it was, like, fleeting, you know. Because I so rarely heard it on the radio, it was one of those things where I heard it on the radio once, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, okay, it played on the radio once, and that means I can probably get to play it again somehow. And so I just, like, sat for hours. I remember sitting for hours by the radio, and sometimes I would call in and try to request <laughs> it. Um, and it took me, like, a month to get it on tape. And I remember when I got it on tape, it felt like the biggest achievement in the world. <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting because uh, uh, another thing about the future self playlist for me was it was um, listening to all the songs that you put down. There was equal measure nostalgia and wow, what's that new song? Who are the city girls? You know, um, and it was right, because yeah. of that brandy track, and it just reminded me of '90s era bands like SWV and Naughty by yeah. Nature and like so there were songs that I heard in in going to nightclubs in Australia and there was a club in Perth called Brannigan's and in Australia there's so many South African migrants I think they're like the seventh largest migrant community there so there was a lot of code switching that went on with like being in uni and li- listening to the Triple J crowd and bands like James and mm-hmm. then Saturday nights going out with my cousins and listening to black R&B and g-funk <laughs> all those sorts yeah. of uh, songs and so brandy kind of just took me back because you know it was that that whole uh it's, it was some it was something so new and there's that hypnotic swaying of hips of south african girls in the clubs they groove to songs very differently because i grew up in singapore and uh you know yeah. and a lot of music is censored um, you know what we heard on the radio for a long time was very very censored so you didn't hear a lot of uh, different music um, and I never heard SWV on Triple J or when I went back to Singapore and then when I moved to London it was a different time for music it was the Strokes and the Orts era and so I really loved how the Brandy track just took me back <laughs> but when you were yeah, making the yeah. playlist was that one of the things putting a little bit of old and a little bit of new having that balance yeah, because I think my future self will be like my present self, which is a self that sometimes uh, wants to be pulled back to a time before this one, right? Mm-hmm. Like well before this one. And so I don't think that's going to change. And I think that it requires, if we talk about how songs can take us back to a place, um, you know, the playlist for my future self, I don't want songs that will only take me back to this specific moment. I want songs that will take me to a moment before this moment. Uh well before this moment because i think that is where for me gratitude Mm. rests with the understanding that i've lived a life soundtracked by songs i loved in moments that were not just uh heartbreaking or treacherous or upsetting in any way Mm. um the idea of the playlist as intentioned the way you've structured it um is that got is that a relationship what's that relationship the two like a Spotify playlist, presumably an algorithm-generated playlist. Because as AI gets so smart these days, you know, I'm sure you can program them to do a playlist that's just as good, you know, to fit the mood. But at the same time, it, it doesn't capture the memories that you have. So what do you see the relationship between a playlist, like a human-made playlist like yours and something that's AI-generated? Yeah, I mean, well, for me, I think I'm most interested in um, the playlist as a type of narrative project or as a even a literary project. And, um, 
you know, there's something there, I think, about having um, a set of songs arranged by a person telling a story that they want you to hear um, and feeling through the telling of that story, um, feeling a connection to a life or a moment or a, 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 an arc of emotion. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's something that I, I don't think is taken fully into account when it's like an algorithm putting songs together. I kind of need the human contact of, I chose these songs, these specific songs, and I put them in this, um, in this specific, in this specific order for a reason. Mm. So they are black people in the future. Um, that's mm. such a powerful statement. Um, even though it shouldn't be, it should be a given, I think. Um, can you tell us about this billboard, the artist behind it, and um, what happened to it, and how you sort of connected it to your episode on Afrofuturism? Yeah, um, the artist is Alicia B. Wormsley, uh, and the billboard originally was in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Pittsburgh. And it was removed um, because there were people who found it, who found its messaging uh, jarring or alarming, which that in and of itself is fascinating to me mm -hmm. um, because it's not, you know, it's just kind of like plain black billboard of white text. But what people were saying was the language was a problem or the assertion was a problem. Uh, which is more of an indictment on, I think, those people's imaginations uh, and interior motives than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, but I, because of, you know, I was thinking through the ways that it might be alarming to some to come to terms with the fact that there are black people in the future, and it, it made sense to talk to, uh, not only to talk to, to Kimberly and to Jenna and to Sudan Archives, mm -hmm. um, but also to kind of consider how long that message has been in circulation among black art makers, even if not as explicit as it was on that billboard atop a building in Pittsburgh. Um, but uh, the imagination of black art makers and the, the work that black art makers have taken to. So when you um, talk about how uh, music has saved your life, um, literally, and, and those around you, Thinking about that a little bit, I was struck by reading the bio for the band Nothing, which you played, uh, I think it was a Fabricated Life, and I was reading a little bit yeah. more and about uh, frontman Nick Palermo and how he did a, a stint in jail and how suicidal he'd felt until he started making music again. Um, and it, it was interesting because I also interviewed um, Emmy the Great not long ago uh, from the UK and she sort of mentioned the same thing about how she couldn't be flippant about now making music because all these people came out to the Barbican with their mask and sat like seven seats away from anyone um, to watch right. her and how kind of powerful that was. Um, and so yeah. when we say, oh, you know, music saved my life, it's not hyperbole. Um, and for you, is it also informed by the work that you do in your own community in 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 Ohio? Uh, you mean does does music inform that? Yeah. Does I mean in some in some ways, yes. But I also think that it generally, if it does inform it, it it's because it like everywhere it gives me an entry point. Um, 
with which I can just be in touch with more people. And so much of the way I make sense of the world is through music. And so, I mean, I'm a deeply cynical person, though I'm working on that. Um, but I think music is something that can, uh, if I'm lucky, like snap me out of my cynicism at least a little briefly uh, and propel me towards something better. I, I think I need someone else's lens on the world in my worst moments to to bring me to a better place. Interesting. Um, uh, you know the the covers episode with with uh, Jeff Tweedy. Um, Jeff, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that moment when um, you play that track where his son kind of breaks down or he stops singing. Um, it was so powerful because when he sings that John Denver song anyway, I, I never saw the original uh, Instagram um, uh, event that they did. But was that particular track that you played the actual track from the live Instagram show? Um, because I couldn't tell. And um, and I just, um, you know, when he sings that, it's sort of um, immediately you tapped into that same pain. You, you recognize that pain of... Uh, singing that John Denver song in this moment right now. Um, do you, th- what do you think is going to change about me- that, that sort of impact is going to be when everything opens up again, the way we've kind of really become so intimate with singers and musicians and gone into their homes and, you know, like Phoebe Bridges, I've seen her in those starry pajamas and that um, that skeleton outfit for so many um, of her concerts. How do you think all that's going to impact us once the world opens up again? Well, I think it'll require some recalibration with intimacy in what people believe they have access to both emotional access and like very physical access, which, you know, for musicians is already kind of a problem, um, particularly for musicians who are not like straight men. Um, And so because we've seen so much of the interior of people's lives, uh, I think it'll be important to re-enter the world understanding that, um, you know, you don't necessarily have unfettered access to everyone everywhere Mm -hmm. but I I think that's tough you know because um some of this is out of necessity like this type of require this type of um window of intimacy is out of necessity it's not necessarily out of um like pleasure I think Mm. that, that many people are um offering this much of their lives to people. Uh, and so I, but I do think it'll require an understanding of like, uh, knowing that there was a world in a pandemic where the way to, to kind of bridge these gaps of closeness was to open up homes and open up like, uh, shots of a life that cannot be replicated in the same way when, if, and when the world is safe for people to go outside and again. Yeah. Um, what's been getting you through, the pandemic are you still baking yeah i mean occasionally i had planned to actually bake this weekend um so i've been occasionally baking um but also doing now in the winter you know i'm doing puzzles because i i'd like set up this big plan of how i needed to um you know take care of my mental and emotional health uh with the days being you know shorter and the darkness being longer 
and generally just being, you know, in the midst of everything we're in the midst of. Um, and so I've been doing puzzles. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of, uh, just like record listening and doing like archival digs for photos of musicians that make me happy. Um, and that has been kind of thrilling too. Mm, nice. Um, so you're also coming out with a new book, a little devil in America. Um, I was hoping to read a little excerpt, uh, excerpt, but I, I don't think I was given one, uh, given the time. So, um, can you tell us what we can expect from that book? And, and um, I think I, I saw something that was mentioned that uh, you also talk a, a little bit about losing your mom. Um, and I'm sorry to hear that. I don't know if it's a recent loss. Uh, oh, no, no. Yeah, she passed when I was 13. Okay. So um, what was it like writing a book like that during the turmoil of the last four years and, and last summer uh, more specifically as well? Well, I mean, I finished it. It was done last summer. It was done in about January, perhaps, of last year. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really think much about it because the book is mostly a celebration of black performance and mm. the modes of black performance throughout U.S. history. And because of that, you know, it was... I felt great writing most of it. This is the best I've felt writing a book in the years I've written books. You know, I've, I felt wow. like I was kind of deep and invested in praise for most of it. And that was great. And that was thrilling and made me feel uh, like I was doing work that honored things I'm excited about mm. and bought me and bought me closer to my people in a way. And and so you know I'm I'm really thankful for the book and I'm really thankful for for the fact that it kind of came out of me at all. Mm -hmm. Be quiet, Elfie. Sorry, my kids were. <laughs> uh -huh. I'm on my last last question, and I had to tell all of them. You know, the interviews early. Everyone, be quiet. <laughs> um, so something like um, Song Exploder crossed over and became a Netflix show recently. Do you think that's going to change the landscape of podcasts? Will we see more chat podcasts about music ten, thanks to Spotify or, or more where music and culture intersect, the, like Wind of Change? Or have oh, you yeah. heard Driving the Green Book? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've heard Wind of Change. Um, I, I really hope stuff... I hope I would love more things like Wind of Change. Um, that is that that project was really mind blowing to me. Um, mm. That project just was, yeah, stunning. So, you know, for me, I hope it's more we get more intersections of culture, um, but also historic, like his history. Um, mm. And understanding that music is and cannot be entirely detached from uh, the, the conditions that was made in. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm someone who would who would love more things like Wind of Change and, and more things um, in that realm. Mm, did, have you heard the Driving the Green book yet? I haven't, but I'll check it out. 
Yeah, so it, it's given the Green Book, the movie, and um, I think a lot of people felt like there was a lot lacking there. The real story of the Green Book wasn't yeah. fleshed out in the way they would have liked to have seen it. So driving the Green Book is interesting in that way. The the actualities from the people who uh, whose parents actually used the Green Book um, was so illuminating. So I really, I enjoyed that. There was... I mean, I didn't always like the host's voice. I don't know um, something about that. But uh, I, I, I enjoyed the different stories that were told through that. So I was interested to see what you think of it. Yeah, I'll check it out. It seems interesting. Yeah, it's by Macmillan Podcasts. Um, and uh, okay, thank you very much. I, um, oh, one minute away. So did you want to add anything about um, Objects of Sound or your upcoming book? No, thank you for the time. And I, you know, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hope that you continue to enjoy the podcast as it as it grows and takes shape. I will. And it's only a short form podcast, right? How yeah. long? How many episodes do you have? Um, I think we're doing 15. Wow. So yeah. it's quite a good good size. Oh, I'm I am really looking forward to it. I religiously listen to every song that you played and then put them on my little list of going to find out a little bit more about the artist. So yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, I I feel like um, this odd time. Um, uh, our first interview for the podcast was with Jason Bentley, and I felt like he leaving in 2019. Uh, KCRW does this, yeah. and then that coincided with the pandemic. There was this big, huge loss that I felt of of like trying to be hip to the music or finding out what I should be listening to because all those modes had disappeared. We had no more festivals, you know, so like press releases seemed a bit dry because there was no festival to go see them or show to go and watch and, you know, listen to, on the ground to what other people were saying at a show or meeting your friends and eating and talking to them about what they were listening to. So I feel like Object of Sound is really timely for me. So for me, it's going to be like a, a bit of a music Bible for a while. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I hope you continue to enjoy it. And thanks for taking the time. Okay. Well, you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Hanif. All right. Bye. There's a link in our show notes to Object of Sound. You'll also find there a link to our Facebook group. Leave any questions you may have for me there. I'd love to hear from you while I work on episodes for season two the first of which will drop next month. I'm going to give you a hint of who our first guest might be. It's the leader of a band that's been living in their own bubble. Do you know who it is? Well, drop me a line at the Facebook group page. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter. My details are in the show notes. Till next time, stay safe out there. (laughs) 